I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the bounce for stocks, another pivotal week getting underway for your money. Fed meeting, Apple earnings, jobs report, all on deck, likely to move markets, as you know. With me for the hour to go through it all today, Joe Terranova, Steve Weiss, Jim Labenthal, everybody here at Post 9. We checked the markets. I said we have a bounce, and we do uh, across the board. There you go. Pretty good day uh, on this Monday. 489, the 10-year note yield. Which is the most important, Joe, do you think? Fed decision, Apple earnings, jobs report, the Treasury refunding, which I know you've been watching because of supply, the impact on the bond market over the last, you know, six to eight weeks. What's most important here? Treasury refunding. Of all those, really? Yes. Treasury, I absolutely believe it is. Uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen's comments last week seemed to somewhat indicate that maybe the Treasury is not going to pull back on the type of supply that they announced in the month of August. They certainly cannot surprise the market here. If they surprise the market, you will see uh, the 10-year yield shoot above 5%, and that will hamstring the ability, certainly, of technology and the rest of the S&P 500 to mount any type of recovery in what is a very deeply oversold condition. Do you think that's the most important? I mean, normally, maybe we'd say, you know, okay, uh, Fed meeting is, is the moment. Um, but then given the way mega caps traded last week, Weiss, because the earnings, maybe Apple's most important this week to sort of steady the ship. What do you think of, of what we just ran off is going to drive the action this week more than anything else? I think Apple's the least important of all those factors. I, I think it may be number 10 in a list of 10. Uh, Even as the biggest stock in the market? It, it'll have some influence. But we've already had the mega caps yep. report. Apple is sort of its own story at this point. It's about how many iPhones they can sell going forward, uh, how many have they sold in the past quarter, understanding the launch only caught the tail end of the launch the last quarter, uh, what service is doing. It's all very idiosyncratic to Apple. I don't think that influences the market at all. So, look, everything you described, the Treasury auction, jobs report, they all lead to rates at the end of the day. Jobs report, that's really just going when Jobs report itself means nothing. It's what's it doing to rates. And the Fed, what are they going to do with rates? So, look, I think the die is pretty much cast. Uh, what we have is we have China being a net seller of treasuries. Uh, so we've seen some, you know, auctions that haven't gone particularly well. I think that's going to continue to be the narrative. And it's going to be about rates. Look, can we, we are oversold, right? So we can continue to have a rally absent some bad news. But I don't believe it's going to be a sustainable rally. My playbook is that maybe we bounce a little bit here, but overall the direction will be lower because the S&P is going to be up over 2% in terms of earnings this year after being down for a year, succession, successive quarters. So maybe that gives you some, uh, some ballast to the market. I bring overall, up Apple because the Nasdaq's slower. riding a three-week losing streak. Right. But look what happened last week, right? You had Microsoft, which I think is much more important because that incorporates AI. Apple's not really involved in the AI right now. They will be. That includes uh, AWS with data centers and with cloud and Google. So Google didn't really sidetrack it. The market went to the more important companies, in my view, Meta and Microsoft. And Meta had an amazing recovery. You know, because people realized, hey, she's giving macro commentary not micro-commentary on the stock, so. So I'm, I'm with Joe. 
that I think it's uh, uh, Treasury bills that in particular are needing to be funded. You know, if I look at earnings, just where we are right now, uh, one month into the third quarter earnings season, the estimates are that we're going to be 3% higher than at the beginning of the reporting season in terms of third quarter earnings. So earnings are coming in better than expected. And the estimates for next year are hanging in there at a 12% growth rate. Now, Steve and I may dispute about whether that's realistic or not, but let me just continue here for a second. The decline this past month in the stock market is pretty pronounced, whether it's the NASDAQ or S&P 500 is down 4% on the month. That's pretty pronounced. And I have to ask myself, why is it? I think this is really a delayed reaction to the debt ceiling negotiation. I think this is the fourth quarter of 2011, again, where the Treasury is restocking uh, its general account at the same time the deficit means uh, that there is a flow of funds out of the stock market into buying these T-bills. We know the Fed's not buying them. Uh, the money's got to come from somewhere. Now, where I get very comfortable and where Steve, you and I disagree on this, is that the economy to me is really quite strong. And I go to the labor market as, as the uh, exhibit number one through five to support that case. Uh, that's going to promote disposable income as uh, inflation continues I'm, to come I'm down. I'm glad you didn't go to the TSA numbers <laughs> anymore. At least you're going to the labor market coming. for a coming. change. And now we move the labor market up to one through five. Please continue. Well, you know, we do have an on ongoing drama, you and I. I take feedback. I incorporate it. By the way, the TSA statistics are through the roof. Yeah, but whatever. Keep going. Okay. You were on a roll. Don't go backwards. All right. Well, don't interrupt me. Uh, <laughs> no. Anyway, look, look, I, I understand the situation. We're in a correction. When we're in a correction, it's easy to focus on the bad news about student loan repayments, horrible things going on in terms of military conflicts. Uh, I get it. But this is an economy that is very strong. Profits are growing and looks set to continue to grow with the decline in the stock market. The opportunities look great. I stick with my year-end call of 44.50 on the S&P 500. Scott, that's 7% higher from here. Okay, 44.50. I just make a note of it again. Um, on a day where Oppenheimer has cut its target from 4,900 to 4,400. So they're in your ballpark now. Um, what's interesting, too, is Ed Yardeni today, okay? He's been bullish. And he's been more bullish than most, I think, for longer than people have. He says the following of the fact that the S&P is now down more than 10 percent from its July 31st peak for the for the year, quote, not likely to regain what has been lost since then over the rest of the year, as we had expected in August and September. We still think that a Santa Claus rally is possible. But between now and Thanksgiving, it's easier to see downside than upside for the stock market. Now, he talks about jitters in the bond market. He talks about what's happening in the Middle East. He talks about risk off being obviously evident in the Russell 2000. Think about that. This from Ed Yardeni. I know. I know. Ed Yardeni. Um, Who's next? Tom very, Lee? I mean, <laughs> very thoughtful guy. And I, I told you we had him in the office a couple of weeks ago. And I'll tell you the most salient point he made is productivity is increasing. Now, this is a debatable point, okay? But as we talk about wage increases, and we'll get the labor report on Friday, which will tell us how average hourly earnings are doing, you can only get the wage increases that increase uh, the quality of life if productivity is going up to make sure that inflation isn't created by those wage increases. Guess what? We've got a productivity report this week. I think it's Thursday. I don't think it's as important as, Joe, what you were saying about Treasury uh, announcements of funding, but I am definitely, as is Ed, watching those productivity numbers. So we, do we need to throw the idea? I mean, he, he sounds, you know, oh, yes, it's possible we could get a Santa Claus rally, but that's way off of the, well, market sort of primed for a run into the end of the year. Now says it's unlikely to recoup what's been lost from the from the from peak July. until now. 
recouping what we lost from July might be somewhat difficult. So you were looking for a, I, I, a, a year-end rally, too. Yeah, I, I do think we, we have the potential to have a year-end rally, middle of November, Thanksgiving-ish, into December. Let's remember, NVIDIA will report as in the few days uh, preceding Thanksgiving, that potentially could be a positive catalyst. You have companies that probably will be buying back their stock as we approach the end of the year. And you do have this deeply oversold condition uh, that now correlates to bearish sentiment that's reflected in positioning as well. So I, I think you get it, but Scott, I don't think you're going to get I don't think it's, it's kind of like the Jet Giant game yesterday. The Jets eked out a win, but it was kind of an ugly game, and the Jets barely won. It was, I think that's the market. So right we're going to get then more punts to play off that. We'll get more punts than anything else. We're, we're not going to be able to get much offense going. We'll just go a bunch of three and outs. We may go sideways. Maybe we'll get a little bit of a bump. Maybe we get a little yep. pullback. Is that the kind of market win for? By the way, Mike Wilson, big shock, says the chances of a fourth quarter rally have fallen. Um, considerably, though, while Piper Sandler says, don't stop believing, 4825, they stick with that. Yeah, I don't know how we get to 4825. Look, well, you get it by going up 17%. That's right, which, which, <laughs> I don't, which I don't see. I think it's ludicrous. Look, I don't think it's out of the question that we hit Jim's target at the end of the year, but the question is from what level and what has to happen. So uh, we'll be done with the Fed this week. Uh, base case for everybody is that they don't hike. I don't see him uh, really dialing back his somewhat hawkish tone. Uh, there's hope that they do, and the market may interpret, as they did the last Fed, well, his testimony just a few weeks ago that, oh, he's pretty dovish, and they sat back and said, no, he's not. He's hawkish. And that took the market down. Yeah, well, but the, don't forget, also, we've been, we've been saying on this program, and Leesman yeah. said it uh, as well numerous times, the movement in the bond market has given the Fed the ability to be patient. And that's my point. So you can't just look at the Fed. You have to look at what's going on. China is a big part, as I just mentioned, of what's going on. Is there an appetite for U.S. Treasuries with our big uh, deficit? And to the countries that have been buying our, our bonds, they have work to do at home to buy their own economy, to, li to put liquid liquidity into their own economy. So I don't think you'd look at one data point like productivity, which is an historical number. I think you have to look at trends. And the trends are that the consumer's weakening, delinquencies are moving up, just the consumers have depleted their savings, and that just doesn't bode well. And the extended lag between what interest rates are doing, should be doing, and what they've done. So that, to me, makes your, your bear case. However. You know, seasonally, and it's not so easy because we only trade on seasonality and it was so predictable, everybody make money, right? But I think seasonality, you know, you could rally off lows, but I don't think lows are yes. How, Jimmy, can you guys, you and Weiss, differ so vehemently on the state of the consumer, which you keep making the cases super strong and Weiss keeps making the case that the consumer's not? Well, it's not me making the case. It's not me making the case. It's the banks that have come out. It's, it's retailers that have come out, okay? It's data that comes out from the Fed on the trends. So is the consumer strong right now? Yeah, in, in pockets, but even the high end, LVMH, you know, they're showing disappointing numbers, right? You know, collectibles, watches, they've come down the pricing. 
So, so it's not me making the case. Do, do you like the way I threw my voice there? You asked me, and he, that was pretty good. Well, I, did, uh, I said you guys. I mean, okay. Well, ahead. anyway, um, look, it's not. Let me be clear, and this is why I haven't really been jabby with you and punching with you a lot, because you're not saying things that are wrong, right? I mean, we see what's going on with credit card delinquencies. Can we pause and memorialize. Hang on, hang on. Subprime auto loans and all those sort of things. They have to be taken into context, and context is given by guys like Brian Moynihan, CEO of Bank of America, who looks at credit card delinquencies on the earnings report a few weeks ago and said they are normalizing. They were below normal for quite some time with stimulus. Now, your point, I think, would be, okay, but they're not going to stop there after they normalize. Sure. My point back to you is with the strength in the labor market, with the wage increases that we're getting, and yes, productivity does matter, I don't think they are going to shoot past normalization. For people who talk about subprime auto loans and they're going there hard, I got news for you. Subprime autos are a very small part of the overall auto loan uh, uh, if, environment. If you're so bullish on the economy, why are you selling Home Depot? Which is uh, a new I, move for you. Yeah, because, well, first off, I trimmed it uh, a few months ago. I don't know if you remember it. So it's become kind of a tag-end position. And I'm looking at it and I'm saying, do I really need this very small position in Home Depot? Or are there other opportunities out there that I will be buying? So this is not, I'm not really negative on Home Depot for the long run. But with mortgage rates at 8%, I really can't see the housing market getting off of its back anytime soon. And I just think that's going to pressure Home Depot to, to show any meaningful share price gains for the next year or so. Uh, long-term, great stock. I just don't need to have a small piece there. It raises some funds that I can do some interesting things with. So I'm not negative on the stock market by selling out. I'm not negative on the consumer, Scott. I might actually put that into something like that small position of Nike that I bought or some other consumer-oriented names. You know, we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on General Motors, which has, you know, strikes yeah. apparently this deal with the UAW. Um, stock is, is in the red. It's been a, a big loser of late. Yeah. What's your take here? Um, if you do the analysis, which stock analysts do, you come out with a number of what this labor increase should be four years from now. It's probably around $7 billion. Now, I don't know if Adam Jonas or some other analyst is going to come out and say it's $8 billion, it's $6 billion. Let's call it $7 billion. All right, this is on a company that has around $150 billion uh, of revenue. So over the next four years, do we think that, those, that the pricing on the cars is going to go up a little bit to cover some of that? You bet. But with the stock trading at four and a half times earnings, that's implying one of two things. Either they think that people who are selling this stock at this price think that the labor cost is going to be more than that $7 billion, or, Scott and everybody watching, what I think the issue here is the slowing EV demand uh, in America, just at a time that GM and Ford are putting a lot of money into building out EV plants. And there's some worry that this cyclical slowdown could be part of something bigger, to which I say, if you look at the profitability of the internal combustion engine business at GM, it's enormous. And it is more than funding whatever these losses are perceived to be going forward in the EV business. Are you are you are you running out of patience with this? Forget the company I, and I, the balance sheet, the stock. Uh, yes, yes, I am. I mean, how could I not? How could I answer that question as I'm not running out of patience, but I'm not selling the stock. And let me just tell you why. Uh, we went through this last week. This company has a lot of cash on the balance sheet and it generates a lot of free cash flow. They are buying back shares with that free cash flow in meaningful size, shrinking the share count at the last report 5% year over year. So what this means in terms of patience, Scott, it's driving me nuts. And I think about it a lot on the weekends, but what they are doing is they are concentrating my ownership of that business, which as I said, is very profitable. So I have to be patient and let it, let it continue and let that share count dwindle where I'm a more concentrated shareholder. Now, I know you can't say anything specific, 
to the rebalance that you have coming up. Mm -hmm. But I just want to remind our viewers, since we talk about the Joe T all the time, Mm -hmm. that you do have a rebalance in the next few days to figure out exactly what you're going to be doing and the types of stocks you think are going to be leading from here forward. You take us through the thought process before you actually reveal on the air in the days ahead of what you did. So I think the way you have to think about it is you have to understand, and I think, Steve, you know this well, long-only, long-only strategies are going to go through periods of underperformance. And it's very clear to me that that's, in fact, what's going on with the strategy right now. It's in a period of underperformance. Why? Because it's equally weighted and because it moved at the end of the year out of the mega caps. It got back in quickly enough, but without question, the underperformance is present. So then you ask yourself, how long do you think the underperformance can actually be there in the strategy? And you look for signals in which you could see the underperformance begin to mean revert, and now you go through the period of outperformance. And the conditions for me, as I see them, are not in place right now. So I'm basically saying that I think the strategy is going to continue to underperform. The strategy is going to continue to underperform until the reality of a 10-year Treasury at 4.9%, when it should not be there, it should not be there, reverses. Safe haven demand off uh, geopolitics, not affecting the Treasury market. Um, Looking the Federal Reserve being basically frozen, not affecting the Treasury market. So the underperformance is present. I think the underperformance continues. I also think less is more. I think less is more in terms of turnover when you're going through that type of period. And obviously, the first priority is to ensure that if you have losing positions, you neutralize those positions. That's kind of the way I'm looking at it. But are you also saying that that higher for longer is bad for your strategy? Yes, because in a higher for longer strategy, we have two factors, quality Quality and and momentum. momentum. Which one, which one, which one gets prioritized? I've heard that before. But quality, quality gets prioritized, and momentum, is, it basically vanishes in a marketplace. So where's the momentum right now? Can you find momentum in equities anywhere right now? We had it in the Magnificent Seven, which are, you know, the Magnificent Five at this point. Tesla looks like it's bleeding below 200. It's down 20% on a month. There's really no momentum in the marketplace right well, now. That's why so I remember, it's momentum-oriented. It is momentum-based. And momentum and quality combine it together, it's, you know, a difficult environment. Well, that's why I go back to the idea of don't sleep on Apple this week and its importance to the market. Because because of the way the Nasdaq's been down, because of the way some of the stocks within the, the Magnificent Seven didn't react that well to their earnings, even Microsoft, right? I mean, Microsoft didn't, you know, pop pop massively on the back of what was, uh, it was a nice, it was a good report. I, I really struggle to find somebody who's very optimistic on this quarter. I really struggle. I mean, everybody's out there saying, like, hey, China phone sales, uh, declining net income, that sort of stuff. I mean, there's a lot of negativity well, about Well, Morgan Apple. Stanley reiterated they're overweight today, by the way, and they, they're uh, – they're looking for a, a weak outlook for the holiday quarter, even because, as they say that. And, and because sentiment matters. And really, Joe, that's what I heard you just saying. And I actually take a lot of comfort from the negativity of my frenemy right next to me and, and the negativity in the market overall. Sentiment is horrible right now. That is the condition from which rallies grow. They don't grow from effusive optimism and Jim, everything. Jim, is it so much sentiment good? as it is conditions? Think about the difference. Well, sentiment is a condition. But, sentiment no, no, is a condition. But 
but it, but it is both. the overall conditions in the market are unfavorable, right? You would say business conditions uh, in totality right now, unfavorable. Conditions as it relates towards investing in individual stocks, going idiosyncratic, going bottoms up. Everyone in the network says this is a stock picker's market. Really? <laughs> this is a stock picker's market? I don't think so. Weiss uh, bought, Weiss bought more Alphabet, I, I right? Think, you yeah, bought more yeah. Alphabet. You think this is a stock picker's market? I, I think it's a stock picker's market more than any other market. Yes, absolutely. I'm with Steve. I do, without a doubt. I'm with without Steve. Look, the, um, <clears throat> you yeah, trimmed I, your cues short and you bought more Alphabet. Yeah, I trimmed my cues So you short. obviously think if there's going to be any momentum in the market, speaking back to momentum, it's going to be in the mega caps. I do. I do. I don't think there's an appetite for auto stocks. But then how do you minimize the importance of Apple in the same breath? Well, not, not all mega stocks or mega caps are created equal. <laughs> you know, they're not. They're different fundamentals. Ergo, it's a stock picker's market. Otherwise, I would just, you know, buy the cues. But the idea of being short the cues is that I believe, as every active manager should believe, that they can pick the stocks that will outperform the indices, right? So, so the cues I put on to partially express a view of where I think the market's going to go, but also to hedge against my, my exposures. So my two largest exposures are uh, United Health's my largest, but away from that, um, you know, Microsoft, Meta, and then Microsoft, and they're pretty much now equal. Um, so I think they will outperform. You know, Meta is just compellingly cheap at this price, and Microsoft is, as I repeatedly said, ad nauseum, it's no one play in II. So that's why I like those. I just don't see GM being attractive even at this level. As a matter of fact, I see Home Depot being more attractive at a 17 PE versus historically being valued much higher. That's my YC. Got to argue so, with so me So that'll about be something. on my list. You know, Gotta the argue margins. With me about something. The problem with CapEx, highly intensive CapEx companies like a GM, is that the margin's very var variable. So you can't count the earnings there. Now, it's unrealistic. I mean, if anybody's leased a car or bought a car, the price to finance and to lease has moved up double, in some cases triple. So how do you get by that, right? It's gonna eventually fade off. Yeah, last well, that, word, th Jimmy. Listen, that may be why the stock trades with a market cap of roughly $40 billion with $13 billion of net cash on the automotive operational side. And again, generated $5 billion of free cash flow last quarter. Now, if you dig into that, okay, there were some working capital adjustments, I'll grant you. There is cash flow generation in size here. To your point, the risk here is that I'm getting the cycle wrong. That's the risk in the GM call. And that maybe the recession starts this quarter and, and all those auto sales are going away. That's the risk. No, I, 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 would, I would almost throw that back to you and say that the risk is that you're you're getting the cycle right and it doesn't matter for the stock because the stock hasn't I get done you. because the stock hasn't done anything no matter the right. cycle. I totally <laughs> get you. So I submit to you that what you're saying is more of a trader's mentality than a long-term investor who is a long-term investor and she sees that share count going down 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 in meaningful size and it's concentrating the growing earnings power for me and my clients who hold those shares. The best play in in autos. I own Tesla puts. That stock's going to 150. I've been called for break 200 broke it today. To me, that's the best play. All right. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll do our calls of the day, including a downgrade for one big tech stock ahead of its earnings report. And later, trade school, a look inside one of the most closely followed mutual funds. It's beating the broader market this year. It is an iconic name in that business. We'll get inside it coming up. Halftime's back in two minutes.
Welcome back to Calls of the Day. We begin it with Cisco downgraded to market perform from outperform Jimmy at Ray J. Uh, reports November 15th, stocks up like 8 or 9% on the year. What do you think about Cisco here? Um, I like Cisco very much. I, I you know, the, this is a very short-term call by the analyst, and he acknowledges that. Um, if you're in Cisco, I, I've never said, hey, this is going to be a great quarter or this is going to be a lousy quarter. Cisco is the ultimate long-term hold. It performs like the S&P 500 over long periods, but without anywhere near the drama. If you put that Splunk acquisition in there, you're going to see some earnings uh, growth pick up here in the coming years. I think you're going to get even better than the S&P 500 uh, with, again, pretty low drama. Dividend yield around 3%, 12 times earnings. I don't know if, if the analyst is right about the coming quarter, but I just don't think that's material to the outlook for the stock in the long run. So, Joe, Chevron has been, I don't know, just kind of ugly, right? I mean, year to date, it's down 20 some odd percent, was down big the other day mm-hmm. on the back of earnings. It's upgraded today to buy at Bank of America. They say the response is overdone. It's a tactical upgrade. What do you think? I think you need the price of oil to move higher. And I think when you look at the totality of 2023, there was a feel-good moment in the energy equities when oil rallied. And other than that, if you, if you strip out that five-week period where you had the spot price of oil rallying and, subs- and as a condition of that, you had energy equities rallying, I think it's been a difficult year. I've said this all along, 2023 for energy equities is not the same as 2022. Now, with all that being said, I do think somewhat similar to how Jimmy's describing the environment as a long-term investor, when you're measuring the supply to demand balance, it definitely favors staying overweight energy looking towards the coming years. But in the near term, I think it is dependent upon where the spot price of oil is going to go. And right now, spot price of oil is rolling back towards $80. I feel that's how Truist is trying to look at the picture, too, looking ahead mm-hmm. to 24, where, where they like the setup because they go uh, t- target and estimates go up on Exxon, um, which you own as well. Yeah, I, th- I think you really just have to set your expectation as an investor and say, OK, in the near term, in the interim, I'm not going to be rewarded on my investment because the environment is not conducive for it. However, I'm going to try and maintain a steady hand and try and position accordingly so I can endure that period of volatility and underperformance because I believe in the long term, as I said, we've got a fundamental condition that's going to work in my favor in the future. Jimmy? Well, I'm listening to what Joe says, and again, thank you, because you're distinguishing between short-term and long-term. Now, I just want to talk about long-term for an ExxonMobil or any of these cyclical stocks. For quite some time, you just pointed this out, for quite some time, the performance operationally has been terrific, and the share prices have not done anything or, in a lot of cases, gone down. Perversely, that's a good situation because there are cash flows that are coming in. They're getting redistributed in the case of ExxonMobil in the form of a tasty dividend and nice, nice share buybacks. I know I've said that three times this show, but Look, this matters over the long period that this mismatch between operational excellence and moribund share prices, the longer that continues, the balance sheet gets better and the cash flows to the shareholder get better. So just hang in there. Just one more quick point on the buybacks, because, you know, Tony Pascarello, who I mentioned, who was on with me last week, ahead of Goldman uh, hedge fund client coverage, he puts out a note and he came on closing bell and, and, you know, a lot of people read it, right? uh, I I read it every day. He talks about buybacks as being one of those, you know, stimulative things that you need for stocks to go higher. Put buybacks in context of the way the market has come down. You always talk about buybacks. I mean, is that a legit 
thing to feel like that can turn the tide or at least help? I think it's a stabilizing force. I don't know if it's a catalyst to reverse some of the negative momentum and send market higher. Um, I think it, it needs to work in combination of a Treasury Department that is not adversarial. I think it has to work in the combination in the month of November of, of no government shutdown. I think it has to work uh, through the combination of getting a little bit of a pullback in yields. We are sitting way too long, and it's far too uncomfortable to be so close continually to 5% for a 10-year. All right, let's get the headlines now with Contessa Brewer. Hi, Contessa. Hi there, Scott. Mexico's government is increasing efforts to help Acapulco after it was hit by a record-breaking hurricane last week. Looting broke out after the storm as food, water, and gasoline became scarce. The Mexican military is now assisting, and the president of Mexico says most of his cabinet is either there or on their way. Category 5 Hurricane Otis killed 48 people. Six people are still missing. Nearly 900,000 don't have any power. The gag order in Donald Trump's federal election interference case in D.C. is back in effect. The order temporarily on hold, which allowed the defense to appeal, but the judge lifted the hold last night. The order bars Trump from making statements or disparaging comments about witnesses, the prosecution, or court staff. And Sesame Street is getting a revamp as it closes out on season 55. In 2025, the show will move from a magazine-style structure to two 11-minute narrative-driven segments woven together in a series called Tales from 123. It's the biggest change since it switched from an hour to 30 minutes in 2016. Because, you know, Scott, attention spans yeah. all collapsing for exactly. all of us. Yeah, Contessa, thank you, Contessa Brewer. All right, up next, our Bob Pisani sits down with BlackRock's Rick Reeder. We'll get his read on rates, the Fed meeting, plus investment opportunities in today's ETF Edge. Looking forward to that. And later, Fidelity's Magellan Fund is one of the most popular mutual funds in history. We have a look at its top holdings now and most recent moves. We'll bring them to you when we come back. We're back on halftime with Bob Pisani now with today's ETF Edge. Hey, Bob, a special guest with you, too. Indeed, Scotty. Stock prices are trending down. Bond yields are trending up. Stocks are entering their seasonally strongest period of the year. But many investors seem happy to clip 5% yields on Treasury bonds. Leave the stock market alone. What's the investment outlook for the rest of the year and into 2024? Here's my guest, Rick Reeder, Chief Investment Officer of Global Fixed Income at BlackRock. But you really are the head of the BlackRock Global Allocation Team. That's, That's the important thing. You've determined <laughs> strategy for the company. There's one topic, everybody's mind, direction of interest rates. Will rates be higher or lower by the end of this year or into early 2024? So, first of all, there's a big geopolitical dynamic that's been driving or moving around the, the, the flight to quality and moving interest rates. Let's assume, for the time being, God willing, that that is stable. Listen, the Treasury's got to issue an awful lot of debt into the, uh, into the system. So my sense is, if you take the short end of the yield curve, I think the Fed, we're going to hear from Chair Powell this week, I think the Fed is largely done. Could they get another hike in? I think short end interest rates have done most of the work. Could the long end of the curve move a bit higher uh, from here because of all the issuances coming? Potentially. But I, I don't think we're going very far from these yield levels. I think we've seen the big rate move already. 
you run the global asset allocation team. So active bond ETFs, they're having a moment. You launched this new active. You're running this yeah. thing. So it's your, your <laughs> baby right here. It's the sure. BlackRock Flexible Income ETF. Yeah. You launched it in May. It's got 160 million assets under management. Uh, two things stick out about this. Number one, this is very unusual. We've got a lot of international stuff here, a lot of Brazilian, Mexican bonds here, some high yield stuff. Emphasis on shorter term as well. What's the emphasis on, on international? Is this where you so, can get better yield now and uh, outperform treasuries? So, our, I mean, by the way, our emerging market exposure is pretty small. Mexico and Brazil are sort of the apex or the best quality of EM. It's only about 5% uh, of the portfolio total in EM. We're using a lot of European investment grade credit, European high yield, because of U.S. dollar investors benefit quite a bit from, because there's a cross-currency base, because you can actually get more yield for being a dollar investor. So you can get, for, for really high-quality short-end investment grade credit, you can get 65 to 7%. Same thing, high yield, you can get close to 10 for Europe. So we are using some Europe, and it's a pretty unusual point in time that as a U.S. dollar investor, you get that sort of yield for what so our it's quite the, do, the strong dollar is really helping when you go out Correct. and buy these and, assets. And by the way, talking about good quality credits, you know, European investment grade credit, two-year, three-year paper, you can get almost 6.5%. I've been doing this a long time. Think about negative rates in Europe. You now get 6.5% for high-quality assets in Europe. Two and three years, you're not taking a lot of long-term interest rate risk, so that's pretty darn attractive. Yeah, I want to talk more about that on ETF Edge, but what about... The broader picture, all those equity investors out yeah. there sitting on the sidelines, clipping 5% treasury bond yields, huge competition for the stock market. I'm, I'm the stocks guy here. I hear every day from investors. They don't want to be in stocks. What would entice them to come back to equities? Or is it a lot of this money just permanently going to stay in the bond market? So, so I mean, there are a couple of things that play. One, the Federal Reserve is probably going to keep rates here for an extended period of time. Secondly, the U.S. Treasury is issuing. We're getting supply of $400 billion a week. Of, thing, of treasury bills. I mean, the numbers are immense. The ability to get five, five, actually five and a half percent, they're going to print bills this week at five and a half percent, pretty darn attractive. I don't think that it means you can't own equities. If you go into next year and you say, gosh, what can I do in my bond portfolio? You know, you mentioned our ETF. We're yielding 7.4% with a lot of high quality assets. That is a competitive uh, asset to equities. That being said, I think equities will do their job next year. Can you still throw off eight to 10, maybe a bit more in equities? I don't think if you take seven stocks out, the multiples on equities aren't that high. If you take the earnings yield of equities, they're still pretty attractive relative to treasury bills. Yes, that is, uh, there is money that's yeah. going to stay in Treasury bills. I still think equities will do their job. Earn, anyway. Earnings yields 5, 5.5%, so serious competition. I, I'm going to bring my colleagues. Scott's got a question there. Scotty. Hey, Rick. Uh, Bob, thank you very much. I just had a question for you based on what you just said, $400 billion a week in issuance. And everybody is focused on it, as you said, at the outset. I'm, I'm wondering, does any part of you worry about the Fed losing control of rates mm. at any point as a result of the issuance that's coming on the market? Yeah, so I mean, listen, this is a big week because we're going to learn about, I mean, hopefully inflation is moderating. We think that is right. We think you're going to get it next year. You'll get it in the high twos. Labor conditions, you are building some slack. It'll be interesting to see the JOLTS report this week and the payroll report. Listen, if you continue to have strength and then the Treasury's got to put that much issuance. By the way, if you take coupon supply like you had last week, we got almost $600 billion last week. The numbers are staggering. Will the Fed lose control of it? My sense is not. But listen, I mean, we got to, and I think everybody who's in the investment community today is hoping that the growth will be moderate. And by the way, that's what we're anticipating next year, and that inflation is moderating alongside of it. But that is the key, because if that's not the case and the Fed's got to keep going and we've got to issue that much, 
yeah, you can have rate, you can have rates move higher. Again, not our base case though. But a lot of people are saying this recent increase in, in rates has done the Fed's work for it essentially. Is that correct? That is correct. I mean, that's so you know, you think about what happens. Most companies borrow, not like they used to be. They don't borrow off the front end of the yield curve generally. They borrow out the curve. Mortgages borrow out the yield curve. What has now happened is long end interest rates have moved up. That's what tightens financial conditions. And the fact that the fact that you've tightened financial conditions, you know, not to get too technical with the forwards. And you know, we were pricing in a Fed. If you go back a couple of months ago, that was going to get to two and a half, two and three quarters over the next couple of years. They've moved back 160, 170 base points. That's done an awful lot of work for the Fed. And I think Chair Powell will reference that this week. And it's a big deal that, yeah. uh, that they don't have to keep going if the markets have done it for them. Thank you, Rick. We're just getting started, folks. We've got much more on the new world of bond investing with Rick Reeder coming up on ETF Edge. That's 1.10 p.m. Eastern Time. Rick will be talking more about the outlook for rates, the economy, stocks and bonds, and much more on his actively managed bond ETF. He's running this one himself, ETFEdge.cnbc.com. Scott, back to you. All right, Bob. Good stuff. Appreciate that very much, Bob Pisani. Up next, a look inside Fidelity's iconic Magellan Fund, including the tech stock that is not not in its top 10 holdings. We're back on the half right after this. All right, we're back. We're getting a look today inside one of the most iconic mutual funds, certainly actively managed ones. The Fidelity Magellan Fund might not be what it was at its peak, $100 billion in assets in the year 2000 to around $28 billion today. But it is still one of the most closely followed funds, returning 13% in the past year, outperforming the 9.9% return of its benchmark, the S&P 500. Its managers, Jeff Vinnick, Peter Lynch, among the legendary ones over the years. Guys, I, I looked at this today and I was like, this is, I, I thought it was interesting top holdings as of the end of September, because that's the, where the most recent filing gets you to. Uh, all mega cap, all mega cap tech, Microsoft, Amazon, NVIDIA, Alphabet, Meta, no Apple. That jumped out to me for one no thing. No Tesla. No Tesla. That's a big, not having that holding is important. So they've counted Visa, MasterCard, Costco, UNH, mm-hmm. typically in their, in their top 10, but first no Apple, no Tesla. What do you think? Great. I think fantastic. And first of all, the way that they're owning, I'll call them the Magnificent Five in this fund, is they're owning the market cap weighted. So I think Microsoft uh, stands currently at about 8% of their overall assets. So they're not equally weighted. They've positioned accordingly. They don't have Apple, which is only up 30% relative to some of the outperformers this year. And they don't hold Tesla. And that is critically Uh, to their advantage, along with, I love that they own Visa, MasterCard, and Costco. They have all worked well, to your your points, on stock picking. Those are three stocks that you could have picked. Recent uh, recent new moves. Uh, Bought more Amazon. Boston Scientific, they bought Intuit. You own Intuit, don't you? Mm -hmm. So that's there. And then exited Weiss Analog Devices, Rockwell Automation, Yum Brands, and Humana. You 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 have Humana, don't you? Yes, I do. Yeah. 
So, so what do you think here? So, well, let's back up the context. So the, the fund is so huge, right? It's monstrous. So in order to avoid being just regarded as an index fund, and so why would you invest in Magellan if they're just copying the index? They've got to make some outside bets, both long, to Joe's point, to short. Well, you're, so I do you're, believe you're paying for these legendary people to actively manage it. Exactly. Like, manage it like um, uh, Will Danoff does right. with the Contra Fund. Right. Yeah. So, so it is important to, from this perspective, they don't have Apple. I, I disagree on the importance of Tesla. I think it's obviously helped their performance on having it. But uh, I don't think so Tesla's important. So how can you disagree? Side. I'm not arguing with you, but right. the fact that right. they don't He's have it. He's making a so, point. Right. He's no, making no, the point that they don't I, have it, which is added I to their performance. I think it's less important. <laughs> I think Apple's important. <laughs> okay. so, so look, so... Um, Humana. It lines up. So Humana, look, I like Humana. I mean, it's got some volatility to it. Over the last year, it depends where you buy it, right? Point of entry. So I happen to have bought it well, added to it better, and I still like it in UNH, and they pretty much form in line. I think UNH is a slightly better company, more diverse, uh, but I'm continuing to be there. What's your take on what you see here? I, I see active management. I see stock picking. I like what I see. Um, you know, they face the conundrum that every active manager faces this year of what do you do with the FANG stocks? What do you do with mega cap tech? And they've made choices. Those choices have worked you out. You own them, and you own them big. Well, no, not over the last three months you don't. I mean, look at, I mean, just to the point we were making, Tesla's off 33%. No, 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 but I mean, the, the, the Magellan Fund, it strikes me as more of like a, a, a large ship. You're not going to turn it multiple right. times I, You know, so let quickly. me ask you, let me ask this earnestly. $28 billion, and maybe I'll ask you, Steve, because you said it's huge. That doesn't strike me as huge. And granted, it was $100 billion 20 years ago yeah. or whatever it was. I'll it take was it in huge then. It's it huge, uh-huh. it huge meaning that they that they can only buy a certain market cap level of stock to impact performance. But really? I mean, we're talking about Microsoft with a two and a half trillion dollar market cap. I mean, I, I, tw- I okay. Look, I'm not putting. We're, them, we're not. We, we don't I, to, I, let me be clear. The largest position is is Microsoft, but it, it does say something to me that their top five holdings are all mega cap tech. They're, they're choosing stocks. They're choo- and this is my point. They're choosing stocks wisely. They had to be in large cap tech. If you want to have $28 billion, which, by the way, like I'm not sneezing at that. Don't anybody get that wrong. But if you want to maintain that much money, you better be where the puck is going. And this year it has been large cap tech. But they're doing the smart thing in missing some obvious fails here. And Tesla is the top of well, the what list. What difference does it make how much money they are managing don't you always want to be where the puck is uh, allegedly going? It's a good question, and yes, you do. And the reason I brought it up is because if it were as big as it was back in the day, it might actually be defining by its actions where the puck is going. That's not the case right now. I've got nothing to say. All right. <laughs> you do. But we're out of time. Mike Santoli, he has plenty to say. He's next to this day work. We are back. Our senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, sitting next to me. As you see, I, I read something you, you said earlier, which I, I guess could be described as the churn zone yes. of, of where we are. And when are we going to get out of this churn zone? Yeah, this churn zone dating back to the spring. Um, I think we're lucky if we hang here for a little while before maybe gathering up some uh, some potential energy. Today, all we're really seeing is 
an unwind of the late Friday, let's get shaken out of risk because the weekend's coming. We've seen it. We talked about it at the time. Last three Fridays, you get a little bit of a VIX spike. Uh, you have stocks backing off, especially smaller stocks late in the day. We're in that, that kind of zone, that, that phase where we're anticipating uh, something else to happen geopolitically. And also, you don't want to hold overnight because it feels like it's treacherous tape. So we got the unwind oil down, mm-hmm. uh, VIX coming in, but it's only that. It's not really showing that, even though everyone knows the market has gotten pretty oversold. Uh, I think we have to wait and get persuaded that the bond market's not going to decide to freak out on what's coming this week. You see this week, uh, right, yeah. Fed meeting, jobs report, um, you have the issuance. And you have Apple. So it's another pivotal one. Yes. Um, And, and, you know, I said last week, you know, even though the bond uh, yields were not really the story, they they sort of sat there. Um, The 10 year did not come in below 4.8 the whole week. And that seems to be, you know, just this shelf that the chart is sitting on. Um, It seems silly to be that kind of granular about what matters uh, at the moment. But I think, look, earnings are up a few percent in the three months. The market's down 10 percent. So things have not gotten all bad. It's just about uh, what's going to prompt you from de- for de- to decide to add exposure aside from it's oversold and we're, we're due for a seasonal bounce, which hasn't shown up yet. Yeah, we'll see if we get that catalyst this yeah. week. I'll see you in a couple hours of closing belts. Mike Santoli, Final Trades are next. Big Apple event tonight. Big questions about the stock. Morgan Stanley's Eric Woodring will be with me on Closing Bell, 3 o'clock Eastern. Ed Yardeni, too. He'll expand on what he thinks is going to happen. Stocks from here. Let's do final trades. Farmer Jim, you're up first. Not every final trade has to be some cyclical stock that may or may not work out in the short term, and I've got to take heat for it. Let's just go with Alphabet. All right, Alphabet's easy at this valuation. It's got a little price change over the last week. That's the final trade. All righty. Weiss. Meta. Stock's still very cheap. We'll continue to act well. I'm not really in the mood to add more coverage, but, you know, stocks. W.W. Granger. Okay. Uh, Good stuff. Dow's good for 345. Walk you through the final hour. Closing bell, the exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer.